0: Welcome to Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics and art. I'm Chris Kreitschow. and I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about
1: science journalism. Now, before you worry yourself, I love science and I love journalism, but I hate science journalism. So this is not going to be an anti-science podcast. On the contrary, Chris and I think science is awesome. I also have a background as a journalist. I have an undergraduate journalism degree. Um, and I teach science writers how to write about science effectively. So I have a very well-versed background in science writing and journalistic writing, even if I don't have a science background in any particular way. This being said, this gives me plenty of
0: reasons to love science and hate science journalism. <laughs> And I have an undergraduate degree in physics, so I like the science a lot, and I doubly hate science journalism so, because it's terrible yeah now <laughs> we say hate we don't we don't really mean hate, yeah. what we mostly mean is this could be so much better so much this better. is so broken so broken
1: <laughs> and the and the problem is that it's not that there's you know deceptive or improper or lazy or bad journalists exclusively doing this work. I mean, I'm certain that there's some of all of those in every journalistic field. Hello, Stephen Glass. But the problems that come of doing science journalism are many. There are tons of market forces. There are tons of scientific forces, political forces, tons of things bearing down on science journalism, making it extremely difficult to do. And so today we're going to talk about some of those issues. How do we handle extreme complexity? How do we handle political footballs? How do we handle clickbait, you know, tiny time (laughs) stuff, which we've talked about a lot. So we're going to give that a lower amount of time on this particular podcast, but it'll still be in there because that's part of what science journalists are dealing with. Mm -hmm. So
0: there are a couple articles which prompted us to talk about this specifically, but the trend has been ongoing for a long time. And the hot button topic these days, most of the time, is climate change and how we ought to respond to it. But it comes up in other areas. There is an article we'll drop in the show notes about scientists publishing data on believed gravitational waves from the Big Bang that has since been thought not so much to be the case. And there are (laughs) major... people being upset about, uh, as the article puts it, jumping the gun on this and so on. These things come up both in the kinds of very publicly interesting areas like climate change where there is policy to be made and political concern, but they also come up in reporting and even publishing basic scientific results and how those things get reported. And as Stephen said, there are political and personal and all these reasons coming into play. We're going to start with the broad kind of political pressures to make journalism in general come out as sound bites, but applied specifically to science. So, why is it that science journalism, like much other journalism, gets reduced to sound bites so much? What is the driver for that?
1: Well, it's because science drives policy. So especially in an era where we're conscious of environmental stuff, whether it be oil, whether it be energy more broadly, whether it be pollution, whether it be any of these many things that are going on, we're aware of how we impact the earth. Now, whether we believe or agree or try to hide or all these different deferential ways that we treat this idea that we are impacting the environment, that's where the the problems come in. But in general, we're aware that drilling into the Earth has effects on the Earth. Right. Which was not always the case, as odd <laughs> as that may sound. Right. So... We know that things happen when we do stuff to the Earth, and that means that we have to make policies surrounding this. Fracking law, we have to make open or close areas to drilling, we have to Mm -hmm. make standards for solar energy and how they can be integrated or not into the power grid. We have to make policies, and I'm focusing on energy law because it's the obvious one, but there's also you know pollution law and the EPA and carbon swaps and all of these issues that are... (laughs) Right. That are also involved. And it's because science drives policy to a large degree right now.
0: Right. And so whether you particularly like government engagement in certain areas like these or not, and regardless of what you think the government policy should be, there's a natural sense in which the science is going to drive policy. But also, and here's where it becomes tricky, policy drives science. Mm -hmm. And There's been a lot of argument going both directions on this in the environmental science discussions about, Mm -hmm. oh, well, anyone opposed to regulating certain things is just in the pocket of big oil, or anyone in favor of regulating certain things is really just trying to make the government have control over every aspect of our lives. And both of these are really misrepresentations of what's going on. That shouldn't particularly surprise us. Sometimes those things are going on. Big oil does have a strong incentive to oppose regulation of their industry.
1: BP does fund science. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And at the same time, people with ideological axes to grind for government regulation of things have used environmentalism as a cover for that. And so though those things exist, it is still unfair to say everyone operating on either of those sides is only doing it because of those reasons. That's just not true. Right. But the other thing that's going on there is you have the difficulty of formulating policy on really big, complicated things. Yeah. And so when you're trying to drive policy, you run into the difficulty of saying, okay, what should we fund? And this leads to major competition among people to get funding from the government, as well as from private corporations, which can then shape the direction of their research. Yeah, that's a big problem. And, And as much as we would like all of our research to be pure, unbiased scientific research, in the same way that we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the arts, sometimes when you've got a funder who's pouring millions of dollars into your research program every year, it's hard to run against that even when you're really wanting just to do good science.
1: Right. There's a whole category of abandoned tropical diseases that no one looks at because they aren't being funded in particular ways because the people that would be affected by the research and the products developed by abandoned tropical diseases researchers (laughs) would not be profitable. This is something that we know. There are whole journals of abandoned tropical diseases research. So there's definitely a push where, you know, the money tells you where the science is going. But there's also a recursive loop in that some people want science to say something so they fund it Mm -hmm. to make sure that it'll say something so that they can then get a policy out of it which means that then there has to be more research counter-arguing that from the other side and so you get a recursive loop where you can't really tell who is powering this car anymore it's just going of its own (laughs) recursive loopness and that's why we're really interested in somebody just hitting the pause button and saying wait let's let's chill out here Let's look at what we've got. Let's take a moment. And that's why this article that Chris is about to talk about is so interesting to us.
0: One of the things that comes up a lot in climate change stuff is that you'll hear people say, well, this is settled or, oh, this is just a hoax. So there's this article by Stephen E. Coonan in the Wall Street Journal. And he makes the point that though people often say these kinds of things, that climate science is settled or it's all just a hoax, the reality is that neither of these accurately represent the situation. There are many things. that are settled about which there is genuine scientific consensus but there are many things that are difficult to explain as well and unfortunately most of the reporting that happens it just goes one way or the other he essentially concludes the article by arguing and i quote because i really liked this "Policymakers in the public may wish for the comfort of certainty in their climate science But I fear that rigidly promulgating the idea that climate science is quote-unquote settled or is a quote-unquote hoax demeans and chills the scientific enterprise, retarding its progress in these important matters. Uncertainty is a prime mover and motivator of science and must be faced head-on. It should not be confined to hushed sidebar conversations at academic conferences. And what I think that highlights and gets absolutely right is that within the working community of scientists, people recognize the ambiguities that we face in this and other areas. People recognize the difficulties inherent in modeling massive cosmological phenomena that reach back billions of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are just they're hard problems, and scientists right. get that. But when you want to drive policy by them, you have to explain it to the public to get the public to go with whatever policy you're going for. Mm-hmm. Even if that's a perfectly reasonable policy based on the science, you inherently have to do a certain degree of simplifying, right. and it is tempting, as Kunin notes, to go from simplifying the explanation to making a certain statement in your explanation. And the first one is essential, though difficult, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But the second The second one is important not to do. The moment we elide all of the difficulties and all of the ambiguities that face us in the scientific enterprise is the moment that we undercut. uh, In the long term, we undercut the public's ability to be confident in the scientific enterprise, and we undercut the ability to make actually good policy decisions on that basis.
1: And the problem is that liberals have often been accused of being elitist or protectionist in that or obstructionist or obscurantist. And that's part of the problem of science: is that if you're going to do science and you're going to write about science in a way that maintains its complexity, you're going to use large words like promulgated, <laughs> and you're going to use technical terms, and you're going to use a lot of things that are going to shoot over a sixth-grade reading level. Like that's right. just going to happen. And yeah, sure, maybe promulgated isn't totally use- necessary, but you know, <laughs> it's the sort of language and writing that comes out of that level of precision. And And even as a graduate student, that level of precision is very difficult to achieve. And so, you know, you need these specific and and sometimes giant words to really get the minute point across. And so, yeah, part of the reason that science is dumbed down is because there are people who say, those big words, and you're just trying to, to fool me with big words. And that's not true. But because it has been true maybe once or a few times, we have to defend against this. And so it becomes a very difficult, political stance to say these big words are important, mm-hmm. which is weird, but that's <laughs> I'm, I'm pro-big words apparently, pro-big words party. So there's there's definitely some complications, even just when we get down to the particular words that we use and the types mm-hmm. of words that we're using, as opposed to just the content. So that's another whole area that science writers are, are pushed from one
0: area or another. And one of the tricks there is that when you're simplifying, you, you do have to set aside some of the details. I have written papers in a scientific style and I have also written explanations of scientific things at a popular level and it's very, very difficult to do the latter because Mm -hmm. you're used to speaking to an audience who understands the jargon and understands Mm -hmm. the context and those context points matter because what your audience understands and what your audience already knows and therefore can be assumed makes an enormous difference. You know, for me to write a paper about the physical of black holes to a general audience versus to write something for a specific and scientifically informed audience is going to look very different because I just have to do a lot less explanation. Right. I have to do a lot less analogizing and so on. Mm-hmm. And so when you're writing for the public, as all science journalism is essentially you have to do that kind of simplification. We're not in any sense opposed to that. And choosing your vocabulary wisely is part of that, recognizing those limits that Stephen said is part of that. But there's also a sense in which the place where problems arise is not simplification, which as we said a moment ago is essential, but in... Reductionism. Reductionism,
1: yeah. That's just always going to be a challenge. But the next thing makes reductionism important, which is the clickbait short (laughs) half-life problem. Right. Which is everybody gets their news from the sidebar of Facebook where you get 20 words. (sighs) You know, and you can click on the link and then go to all the other articles that are aggregated there. But I'm not going to lie. I first found out about the gravity waves thing from Facebook. (laughs) I just I don't run in the circles that gravity waves would have come up on my, you know, radar, through Twitter or even the shared content on Facebook, not to malign my very intelligent Facebook friends. But (laughs) right. You know, so I that's where I found out about it. And then I went and sought out the research and looked up all the places I go for my science journalism that I trust. and. But there's still an aspect where the aggregation that is Facebook powers how concepts are received initially. Mm-hmm. And we know that first impressions are hugely important in how people formulate their opinion on whatever they're reading.
0: And when you're driving policy, all of a sudden that becomes really tempting to reduce it to simple things.
1: Right. And so it's it's not just that people read only a little bit and then quit or that people want to understand in terms they already know, or that policymakers are trying to obscure things. It's that all of these are coming together. Right. And these are all things that are pushing on the science journalist. And we're not even done yet with the things that are pushing on the science journalist. So this is a really complicated endeavor that is extremely important to the life of the country and the world, but it has all these huge elements pushing on it. And we can continue on the clickbait thing, but we have several episodes where we've already decried the problems of... working quickly in a slow medium, which science is extremely slow Yeah, science is very
0: much a slow medium.
1: So we won't rehash that, but you can go check out the episodes. We'll link them in the show notes. So you've got your policy, you've got the level that you have to put your language on, you've got your clickbait market forces, and then you've even got academia pushing you, Mm -hmm. because if you're in a scientific endeavor funded through... university, then you're in the midst of publish or perish, you've got to get stuff out, you want to get tenure, or you want to finish your grant in the allotted time, or you want to make sure that you can get your research out before somebody else does so that your research is still meaningful. Mm -hmm. So you've got all these time pressures from within the academy, which transfer down to science journalism, because if someone comes out with their research too early, as we saw with the gravity wave problem, then not only does the science journalist look somewhat silly, the researchers <laughs> themselves look kind of silly. And then scientific trust is eroded throughout the whole ecosystem, which it's very unfortunate that that's the way that we've positioned science in our culture,
0: that it has to be right all the time. Mm-hmm. But that's... Especially because science kind of, the way the scientific method works is predicated on the assumption that you get it wrong some of the time and you're trying to right. self-correct all the time. Right. Right. <laughs> And so,
1: as, as people who understand the inner workings of science better than, than some, that is an unfortunate situation. But it also is one that science has brought on itself largely. Mm -hmm. So, that is something that science has to deal with. That is their own Frankenstein that they have created because they wanted to have credibility and structural integrity to their arguments. And they wanted the, the force of weight of always being right and interpreting the world rightly. And they blocked out a lot of ways that they can have. You know, in instability in particular arguments or insecurity in particular claims or um, mites and maybes and which are all present in scientific work, but Mm -hmm. have to get edited out for many of these reasons that we've already discussed by the time that you get to the science journalism in time or in wired, (laughs) even even wired.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the takeaways then is for science writers to recognize whether they're from within the. Academy or without, that one of their responsibilities and one of their goals ought to be to communicate accurately and as precisely as possible given the limitations they face. And to recognize that the authority which we have granted the academy is sometimes unhelpful because it does provide that constraint of we have to be right all the time and what if we're not. And I think we can see in medical science how unhelpful that has been because so many people having seen the medical science flip so much in the last 20 to 30 years on fats are bad for you, fats are bad for you, some fats are bad for you fats are good for you, you should not eat carbs, you should eat carbs, you should, every time one of these kinds of things comes out with the certainty of a pronouncement rather than, latest research indicates there may be some things that go this way which is usually how the actual original papers are written, you actually undercut the very goal at which you're aiming, which is to improve people's health and the same thing is true for environmental policy or any of these areas having the courage to say, well this report suggests these things may be the case, Here's some of the uncertainties with which we are still working, actually gives the public more ability to be confident when you say, actually, we, we got this one a little bit off. Here's something that looks like it's a better fit. Because they remember that the first time you said, yeah, we have some uncertainties, instead of we speak from on high. Right. Because most scientists don't think we speak from on high. That's just how it gets translated because of all of these pressures. Well,
1: we haven't even talked about the, the science versus religion pressure, which is a real and present pressure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is, because there's that sense in which uh, many scientists feel like because of the way the debate there has gone, they have to speak with that kind of authority that doubting science is or disagreeing with science is a matter of uh, being irrational mm. or otherwise <laughs> stupid honestly and the same thing comes from the other side that well if you're going to believe that science nonsense you're just not putting your faith where it belongs we don't think that's right (laughs) yeah we don't think that's right and so
1: both of these sides are posturing to try to prove that they're never wrong which both of them (laughs) are wrong all the time in terms of in terms (laughs) of policy like you know these these are things that you can go back and read the last hundred years of religious policy or of scientific policy slash discovery whatever you want to call it, and there are inconsistencies and foibles and failures throughout, but that doesn't mean that the fundamental girding elements of science discover the truth about the natural world, and the fundamental girding elements of religion discover the truth about the metaphysical world and how that relates to our moral and ethical uh, development in a community. Those are both still true, and I don't think that those two things compete with each other in the ways that Chris and I both agree to formulate them, which is they have different spheres, sometimes Sometimes those fears bump up against each other, but I don't think science solves moral problems and I don't think that, you know, we're going to find out much about the physics of black holes from the book of Revelation. <laughs> like- I, Probably I just not. don't I just don't see any <laughs> any indication that that's going to be a thing that happens on either front so no <laughs> you know I think that there's the element of posturing that both sides have done is unproductive to both of their ends and makes both of them mm-hmm. look silly often and I think that's unfortunate that we can't just say hey there are some things that we know and there are some things that we don't and this doesn't mean that our underlying girding assumptions are fallible that that's not what it means the fact that we know that genetics works because of Mendel's experiments on peas is not the same as saying we've figured out everything about genetics in 2014. <laughs> like, that, those are not equal.
0: Right. Having the integrity and the temerity, and it really does take a certain degree of mm-hmm. courage, I think, to say, we don't know everything. Here are the things we know with some confidence, and here are the things we think are true with some degree of confidence, and here are things we suspect might be true, but... Honestly, it's going to take another three decades of research till we have any idea doing that gives you so much more freedom. And again, it gives people who are outside your very technical sphere the ability to have confidence yeah. in you. And to apply that even outside of journalism, I see this semi-regularly when dealing with disciplines in theology, and right. that sometimes it's technical, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes there are ambiguities. Mm-hmm. And anytime you want to reduce that to a simple, easy thing, well, that's easier for people outside the field to glom onto, but you're doing them a disservice. Right. Maybe. They they don't need to know every last detail of why black hole science is hard and why it is unresolved at times. But let them know that it is. Yeah,
1: and you don't need to know all of the details of the Athanasian trinity conflict in the fourth century to understand basic tenets of Christianity. You know, these are right. these are not entire constructs. You don't have to have every single thing all in a line for the reality and the basic undergirding principles to be true and to have usefulness going forward, even in that research that is uncertain. And I think that's difficult, like I said, because of the political and market and language and all of these things are just big and weighty issues.
0: I think for the ordinary person coming to the science article, as well as for the people writing the articles, we have a responsibility too. And that is to assume, essentially, that if there's a clear cut answer on something that looks like a really big, complicated problem, we probably need to do more reading because it's probably not that clear cut. Anytime somebody says... Somebody tells you they've got cold fusion. If they've should, got cold fusion and we don't even have reliable out. hot fusion, no, <laughs> watch just out. no. <laughs> but when you when you see an article about climate policy coming from any direction and it's offering these cut and dried, well, this is the case and blah, 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 it's take a step back and say, that's just not how science works. Yeah. Maybe I should do more reading and think harder yeah. about this. And we cannot all be equally informed about everything, but we can be at least somewhat informed about these yeah. things. And I think we have a responsibility to especially in context where we have political pull and power by our votes and our contact with our representatives, etc. And volunteering and being involved. And And so we have a responsibility to say, if someone's claiming that this is all just a hoax, and we should completely deregulate all companies, maybe I should take a step back and say there's probably something else going on here. And by the same token, if someone's saying climate science is all completely settled, and there are no questions, and here are the policies which will save the earth, maybe I should take a step back and ask a few questions because both of these misrepresent the reality of the situation.
1: This has been episode 1.17 of Winning Slowly. All of our content is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, so you can use it to do whatever you want with it, chop it up, remix it, just say that we
0: made the original content. You can subscribe to us in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And hey, if you like our episodes, do us a favor and leave us a nice review and rating on iTunes. We'd like that. You can also follow us on Twitter, app.net, Hello or Facebook.
1: And the content at the beginning of the episode by Pistol Shrimp is not ours, so don't use it without their permission.
0: Until next time, I have been Chris Kreichow,
1: and I am and will be Stephen Caradini. Thanks for listening. was in the 4th century, right? Yep.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. So good.
1: That's real creepy.